You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our quartermasters Hunter, Samuel, Adam, and Birdsong. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Tim and Brendan. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. This is the conclusion to the tale of Ravno de Lusan. Now, many of the characters in his story will pop up elsewhere, Lusan himself once or twice, but the story of his narrative, the story in which Lusan is the central character, is coming to an end today. When we left off, Last time, the buccaneers had just defeated an overwhelming Spanish force, but they'd left more than a thousand other Spanish troops in their wake. The pirates fled downriver, praying that their flight would carry them from any further battles, or at least battles with the Spanish. They knew full well that there were plenty of Native American groups out there, some of whom would be hostile. Luzon himself, said upon their departure to the reader, quote, You may judge by what follows, whether the continual apprehensions of danger we were in were well or ill-grounded. End quote. This is episode 144, Well-Grounded. There were two prominent groups of indigenous peoples in the region. We'll get to the second in a minute, but the first were the Mosquito people. Now, you may be thinking that that's excellent news. I mean, the Mosquito and the Pirates had wonderful relations, right? And that's true, but not applicable here. The Mosquito had good relations with the Dutch Z-Rovers. They had ever since Abraham Blaufeld had founded Abraham's Key at Bluefields. And the Mosquito were on very good terms with the English out of Jamaica. That goes all the way back to 1631, the Providence Island Company began those relations, but they were strengthened by Henry Morgan, and then successive waves of Port Royal buccaneers made those relations even better. English pirates who were sailing to the main almost always had a mosquito guide on board. 
that alliance between England and the Mosquito people would be formally recognized by the English crown in 1740. So the Mosquito got along great with the English. They got along fine with the Dutch, but the French... The last memorable dealings that the French pirates had had with the people of the Mosquito Coast, that was Francois Lolonnais, who landed there in 1666 and made such a violent, psychopathic nuisance of himself that the people there at Cabo Gracias Adios killed him and ate him. And make no mistake here, the Mosquito were a savvy people, they knew the difference between all of the European powers, and they understood the politics between them. They played those politics to their advantage on more than one occasion. And there's this myth about good Indians who never eat people, and bad Indians who eat people all the time. And occasionally there is a little evidence to support some of that, but not here. The English would have had you believe that these allies were the latter sort, but it was almost certainly the Mosquito people that killed Francois Lolonnais and his fellow commanders. Now, whether or not they really ate him is up for debate. That's just what Alexander Exquimelin tells us. But Lolonnais was definitely killed there at Cabo Gracias Adios for his horrific abuses against the Mosquito people. We're talking about torture and rape and murder on a disastrous level. I mention that because that happened only 22 years earlier. Many of the same people that suffered under that French buccaneer's attentions were still alive. Some of them still carried the scars. And when an English admiral, such as Henry Morgan, would arrive with French ships in tow, they were usually able to keep the peace. You know, we're all allies here, at least you are both our allies, so let's not go about killing each other. After all, we're all after the same goal, killing Spanish. And that was often enough. But here, in 1688, there was no English admiral. This was a French buccaneer force, and they were rowing precariously downriver into territory held by the Mosquito, territory that was led by commanders who probably vividly remembered Francois Lolonnais. But first, before we get to any of that, the pirates need to make their way downriver. They had a small fleet of what they called piperies, which were basically small rafts that held two or three, but usually two men, standing up. These piperies submerged the pirates to their knees or thighs, or sometimes all the way to the waist, but they allowed them to float well enough. They navigated on these piperies with very long poles. They didn't need oars, exactly. The current was quite strong. They didn't need to row. But the poles helped them to avoid the many dangers that the river offered. The Rio Segovia, today the Rio Coco, was a fast-moving whitewater river, and it was filled with danger. Luzon writes, quote, The river springs in the mountains of Segovia, and discharges itself into the North Sea at Cape Gracias Adios, after having run a very long way, in a most rapid manner, across a vast number of rocks of a prodigious bigness, and by the most frightful precipices that can be thought of, besides a great many falls of water, to the number of at least an hundred of all sorts, 
which it's impossible for a man to look on without trembling and making the head of the most fearless to turn round when he sees and hears the water fall from such an height into these tremendous whirlpools. End quote. Lusan goes on to tell us that no one who had not seen those frightful precipices and rocks of prodigious bigness, he tells us that no one could begin to believe them had they not seen. And I tend to believe that. I mean, we in the modern world have privileges they didn't have back then. We can fly and then drive to get almost anywhere in the world. We can visit unbelievable locations that people in the ancient world would have had almost no hope of seeing. But how many of us would travel for months to go whitewater rafting, to go rafting without helmets in a place where hitting our head almost certainly meant death? There were no ambulances back then. There was no airlift to the nearest hospital. Rescue crews would be lucky to find anything. Instead, what you had was a filthy rag soaked in wine wrapped around your head. And it would take a lot to convince me to leave hearth and home and good brown beer for something like that. Now, horrific oppression on the one hand and a backpack full of gold on the other, that might just do it. But most people never saw anything like what the pirates had to deal with here. Now, on the first day, the biggest problem was the rocks. A bunch of pirates capsized and had to be rescued. Nearly everyone was soaked by the end of that day, along with their shot and powder. But no one was injured too badly, and no one died. But then came the second day, when the pirates came upon their first waterfall. Those pirates out in the very front heard it first, and a few of them peeled off to the side of the river but a few were either caught in the current or chose to just keep going. Those pirates went over the waterfall, and those who chose to do so regretted their decision. Most of them wound up gasping and sputtering on the bank of the river, doing so without their packs. All of their food and all of their worldly wealth was now at the bottom of a waterfall. So a few bright souls came up with a solution. They tied their packs and themselves to their piperies and then set out over the waterfall. Those pirates would have regretted their decision had they lived to do so. Every man who tried that little gamble was sucked down and never seen again. Soon enough, every pipery pulled off to the side, onto the bank, and the entire crew was assembled to discuss what to do here. The river was difficult. It was dangerous. Now, they were making incredible time, but they were worn out. The pirates now would have to carry their piperies overland down a hill to put back in the river. It was exhausting. But now that they all agreed they were free of any further Spanish attacks, they came up with a system that would allow some of the men to rest while others moved on. They came up with what was kind of a vaguely military system that broke their fleet into pieces. They broke down essentially by crew. However, within the crew they had smaller subunits that would be spread out so that no large groups of pirates could capsize, bringing everybody down. The crew that was to be out front were 
kind of a vanguard. You might think of them as scouts. They were going to be subjected to whatever dangers the river might throw their way without any warning whatsoever. Now, that's a dangerous job. Beyond that, that first crew had to get up first thing in the morning and get into the river before everybody else. However, they had the pleasure, those in the vanguard, of pulling out of the river first. They got to take their ease far before everybody else did. And then they got to sleep in the next day. Those who had been in the vanguard, those who had faced the greatest dangers, got to put in last. They got to sleep as long as they wanted before getting back into the river. And then all of the groups of pirates moved forward one level. Those who had been directly behind the vanguard the day before moved up to the vanguard. Those who had been behind them moved up and so on and so forth. Again, it's Ravno de Lusan who tells us that he alone came up with this strategy, and he had to fight over the objections of the crew to sell it to them, but he did so with his brilliant oratory. Lusan writes, quote, I advised that those who went down first should take care to set up in the most dangerous places a flag or banner at the top of a long pole, so that we might discern it afar off, not so much to give notice to those who were hindermost that there was a fall in such a place, for these would make themselves to be heard almost a league off, but to signify to them what side they were to put to land, which would be that where the flag stood. These methods being put in practice saved the lives of a great many men. End quote. So the pirates had a system in place, a system that admittedly did slow them down, but they were so far from the Spanish army by this point that even being spread out in tiny groups that were unable to defend themselves wasn't a huge concern. In fact, it would be almost impossible for the Spanish to catch up with them. The greatest danger they faced during this period was hunger, but that was going to change. Now, they did have all of that horse flesh that they'd salted just a few days earlier, but imagine taking some beef jerky and emptying that into a burlap bag, and then I want you to soak that in river water for a few hours and then eat it, and when I say I want you to do that, please don't do that. That would be very dangerous. The pirates basically lost all of the food they had with them. The vanguard got into the habit of finding and flagging banana groves, or groves of other fruit. And for about a week, it was a pleasant, peaceful voyage down the river. However, those groves of banana trees started becoming more and more frequent along the river. They became more and more orderly, and once the pirates saw a small structure near the grove. It was clear that they were in inhabited country once again. This stretch of river belonged to indigenous peoples, two distinct groups. The Mosquito controlled the land from the river to the Mosquito Coast, so the southern bank of the river. On the other side, though, we find a people that Ravno de Lusan called the Albauan Nation. The Albauan people were soon to grip the pirates with a terrible sort of fear. In late January, Ravno de Lusan was in the vanguard, near the front but not at the very front. When we 
picture the pirates on the river, we need to take a few things into account. First, remember that they were somewhat submerged. They had big poles to push themselves around, but they didn't move very well. That's a large part of the reason they were so split up, so that one fallen pipery wouldn't take down several others. That is to say that they were within earshot of one another, but oftentimes the pirates were not in sight of each other. As Lusan rounded a bend in the river, he saw the telltale signs of an upturned raft. There was a floating pipery in the middle of the river, but no men struggling in the water, nor was there anyone ashore. There were no shouts, there was no sign of life at all. So Lusan and his companion went ashore to investigate, and there they found signs of violence. There were broken tree limbs and disturbed grass and sand and dirt, and there was blood, a lot of blood, in one location, followed by two separate swaths of blood that led away into the brush. When Lusan and his companion followed those trails of blood, they found exactly what they expected. Two bodies. In this case, they were English, but they were members of the company, and they had their throats slit. Both of their packs were missing, along with all of their worldly wealth, but their swords had gone undrawn. This was a clear assassination. So who were the culprits in all of this? Well, the answer to that was obvious to everyone who saw this scene, Lusan and his companion and those who came after. They were among those Albawan, quote, savages, end quote, that had been spotted in the hills on the north side of the river. They were now a clear and present menace to the safety and security of the voyage. The following day, the pirates on the river spotted a small group of Albawan women. They were walking along a ridge line near the river, carrying fruit on their backs. And some of the pirates got out of the river and went off seeking revenge. At least, it's what they called revenge. Now, Lusan doesn't go into great detail. He wasn't among those that left the river, and even if he had been, he likely wouldn't have written about it. In the very best-case scenario here, those women carrying fruit were killed quickly. But it would be naive to believe that the best-case scenario was what actually happened. In all likelihood, they suffered greatly before their deaths on pirate sabers. Now, to those of us in the modern world, we can see the injustice in all of that. There is no justice found in killing innocent people. But at the time, there was a sense of, they killed our people, let's kill some of theirs. Some in the pirate company even hailed those who went off to seek that revenge as heroes. They did so a few leagues down the river when those who had gone off to seek that revenge were spotted. They had a banner lifted up to announce their location, and they had a haul of fresh fruit for everybody to enjoy. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Over the following days, that very same group of hero pirates slipped off a few more times. They said that they had spotted other Albawan people lurking about. Not innocent women that they could violate and murder, no, these were very clearly the men that they were hunting. They were dark of countenance and frightful of visage, they had terrible bloody blades by their sides. Sadly, perhaps to be expected though, those hero pirates could never catch those frightful monsters. This was their land, and they knew it better than anyone else, but beyond that, those Frightful, Albawan people moved like ghosts. Clearly, they were under the influence of, or perhaps even in league with, Lucifer himself. They had gotten away with murder, and they continued to get away with murder. That group of pirates that went off hunting them over and over again just couldn't catch the villains, and nearly every day more pirates were found dead. They could come from anywhere among the fleet of pirate rafts, not just out front, but in the middle or near the rear. It was a terrifying time when the pirates were prey for those Albawan savages. But Ravno de Luzon noticed something a bit suspicious here. He appears not only to have been a skilled tactician and a talented orator, but also quite the detective. Do you remember, a couple of episodes back, the little drama surrounding the shares between the pirates? How some in the crew had gambled and lost their winnings to others in the crew? How there was even a plot to kill those who had large sums of money that they had won from others? Ravno de Luzon remembered that quite well, since his name had been on the hit list. And there was a connection here that was impossible to ignore. Only those pirates who slipped away, remember, pirates who were guilty of rape and murder oh so recently, only they had ever actually seen these vile, 
terrifying, demonic savages in the hills. And that very same group of pirates, these hero pirates, well, they were well known to have lost all of their winnings in the games. And everyone who had been killed by these assassins, seemingly at random, well, they all happened to be among the biggest winners at the games, those who had well over their given share. Luson brought up his concerns to the leadership, and the leadership was concerned by this, but they seemed more concerned about how justice was to be exacted. I mean, if what Luson said was true, the villains had to be killed, justice had to be brought, but in the interest of order and discipline, which were necessary to their survival, those assassins had to be tried and executed. In what amounted to a pirate court, not killed by a mob of angry pirates. That could lead to the breakdown of order and the doom of this voyage. The leadership, the captains of the various crews, tried to get their men into order, but it was an impossible task. The crew had the scent of blood now, and they wanted the blood of those who had killed their comrades. However, Despite a night of scouring the hills and the camps and the riverbanks, those assassins, those pirates, were nowhere to be found. They had caught wind of the coming storm and slipped away. I wish that there were a satisfying conclusion to this drama, that the pirates had been caught and tried and found guilty, but they were never seen again. If I were writing a fictional version of this story, I would tell maybe of one of the assassins spotted wearing the boots of one of the dead men. But pirates rarely actually wore boots, and these pirates had their feet submerged in water through most of the day. I do like to imagine, though, that those assassins were caught by whoever those indigenous people were, perhaps even by the family of those women that they had attacked and killed, and that they found their justice there. But we don't know what happened to them, and we never will. See, this brings us to what is essentially the end of this leg of the voyage. Shortly after the conclusion of this little drama, in mid-February, the land leveled out, the river had the opportunity to grow wide and calm and free of waterfalls. At that point, all of the French in the fleet decided to stop and build canoes, and that took some time. However, the English still with the company, including George Dew, had a bit of a sour taste in their mouth after so many of them had been targeted by those French assassins. So they went on ahead, without canoes but in their piperies. The English went on ahead into Mosquito Territory, while the French waited behind because, well, they had canoes to build. It has nothing to do with the fact that the Mosquito might just kill all of us on sight. If the English arrived first, they would have the opportunity to warn the Mosquito that Frenchmen were coming, but that they were friends. And, 
In the mind of the French, if those negotiations failed and the mosquitoes still wanted to kill them, they would have canoes that could carry them quickly and safely to the sea. As it happens, though, shortly after setting out on the 1st of March in their freshly built canoes, the French were stopped by a group of mosquito scouts. They were sent, they said, by the English buccaneers, by George Dew in particular, probably. The English had arrived safely, at the Mosquito Coast, and apparently they were waiting at what was really one of the worst-kept secrets in the West Indies. The Mosquito Coast had a ton of settlements, all the way up from Cabo Gracias Adios in the north to Abraham's Key at Bluefields in the south. Those two were the largest and best-defended holdouts of the lot, and they were key locations in the Mosquito-English alliance, and right now, the English were at Cabo Gracias Adios, and even more news, they had secured a ship for the French buccaneers. They'd given a deposit to the captain of that vessel, so he would stick around, and the captain had agreed to give forty pirates a ride wherever they wanted to go, provided they could pay. And that's a smart move for the right kind of captain. The kind of captain who might stop off at Cabo Gracias Adios. If he were, say, a smuggler who had some legitimate credentials but not too many qualms, they could make a fortune if they stopped off at a known pirate haven and found a crew that needed passage. The Mosquito told the French that they were only to send the forty that would be going aboard that vessel. However, all 240 of the French buccaneers showed up at Cabo Gracias Adios only a few days later. The French were back on that fringe of civilization. They had to deal with all of the national tensions that they had left behind when they were in Spanish territory. The French here did not know how things stood between England and France. They might be at war right now, at this moment, and the French would have no way of knowing. And if you were a savvy English privateer who was returning from a semi-legal mission into the Pacific, well, do you remember after the first Pacific adventure how the English were betrayed by the French? They were kidnapped, put in chains, and almost sold to the governor of Saint-Domingue. However, they escaped, but... If only 40 French buccaneers showed up to be shipped off on a ship that they were supposed to believe existed, well, they could be captured by the Mosquito with ease. Their confiscated plunder could be split between the Mosquito and the English, and they could be carried off to Port Royal in chains for summary execution. That would enrich the English privateers and get them back in the governor's good graces. Not only would they have made a fortune on this voyage, they would have made an additional fortune by capturing the French, and they would have earned their way back into the civilized world with one simple stroke. And who knows, that might have been the plan. Now, England and France were not at war, but they were very much on the verge of war. More on that next time. For now, the French decided to make the coast in strength and keep to themselves. It was a gamble, but they did have a trump card here. They had all of those freed slaves with them who were a balm on this situation. 
This was the haven that those freedmen were hoping for. The Mosquito Coast was home to hundreds or maybe even thousands of Maroons, from Jamaica to Cuba to Saint-Domingue, everywhere in the West Indies. This was a place of refuge for them. Now this lot had traveled the very, very long way round from Port Royal to the Mosquito Coast, but they'd made it all the same. It's not impossible to think that they may have actually known people who were there. Ravnaud de Luzon writes, quote, On the 14th, the vessel arrived at the place where we were and came to anchor. About fifty of us, more vigilant than the rest, made a shift to enter her. Being piled, as it were, on top of one another, we weighed anchor and departed. The master would have carried us to Jamaica, but we not knowing how matters stood between France and England, whether it were peace or war, engaged him to carry us to St. Domingo, for forty pieces of eight ahead. On the seventeenth we doubled the island of Providence, as the English call it, which was taken by the French and English under the colors of the last. End quote. They landed next at Cuba, and bought some food and water from the hunters they met there, but they were careful to be simultaneously menacing and polite and they paid full price for everything they bought from those Spaniards because, quote, we were uncertain whether our nation was at peace or war with the Spaniards, since we had no intelligence here from any French country. On the 6th of April, we touched at a small borough on the coast, seven leagues distant from Petit Guave, that so we might hear some news of our own country while we rode at anchor here. There were some of our people so infatuated with the long miseries we had suffered that they thought of nothing but the Spaniards, insomuch that when from the deck they saw some horsemen riding along the seaside, they flew to their arms to fire upon them, imagining they were enemies, though we assured them we were now come amongst those of our own nation. End quote. They were so infatuated with the long misery they had suffered that they almost fired upon their countrymen. That's PTSD. They'd been in enemy territory for years now. They had forgotten their other life. But Ravno de Luzon finally concludes his account with this passage. Quote, we left this port and went to anchor in the port of Petit Guave, from whence we had departed almost four years before. And before we came near the fort, I went to Monsieur Dumas, the king's lieutenant, to require him to grant us protection and indemnity, by virtue of an amnesty, the king had been pleased to send to those that made war upon the Spaniards since the peace. I kind of doubt that's how that actually happened. I imagine that guards and the threat of prison were involved, but that's what Luzon's lawyers would have wanted in the book. Finally, quote, Lastly, when we were all got ashore to a people that spoke French, we could not forbear shedding tears of joy, that after we had run so many hazards, dangers, and perils, it had pleased the Almighty Maker of earth and sea to grant a deliverance and bring us back to those of our own nation. I cannot but add that, for my own part, I had so little hope of ever getting back that I could not, for the space of fifteen days, take my return for any other than an illusion. It proceeded so far with me that I shunned sleep, for fear, when I awaked, I should find myself again in those countries, out of which I was now safely delivered. End quote. 
And with that, we're going to leave Ravno de Lusanne and the French buccaneers who took part in the Second Pacific Adventure. They were safely back home here at the beginning of 1688. Those English buccaneers at Cabo Gracias Adios would make it home as well, and all of the rest of the French, but they only had a brief respite from the life. In the months that followed their return home, the tensions between the powers of Europe grew worse. It became clear that war was imminent, and the pirates had decisions to make. Would they take part in the war as legal privateers, as many of them had begun their careers, or would they instead choose to leave it all behind? We'll get into that and so much more in the coming weeks as we look at, next time, the dawn of the Nine Years' War. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Those of you who have signed up to support the show directly through PayPal. Those of you who have left us ratings or reviews wherever it is you listen to the show. And everyone who has recommended this show. Without all of you, I couldn't do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight